Tonight, we turn in God's Word to the book of Acts, chapter 8. That is printed in our worship folder. If you'd like to follow there, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Acts, chapter 8. Begin our reading at verse 4, and then read through verse 25 of this chapter. Acts 8, beginning at verse 4. We hear now is God's word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. They heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God and is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Here we are in the reading of God's holy word. Well, I hope that as I read that text this evening, and as you look at the sermon title this evening, it is familiar to you. Uh, it was just a couple weeks ago on a rather balmy Sunday evening that we began this sermon, and I preached just point one of the sermon that night. 
Uh, I will do my best not to re-preach point one tonight. If you look on the outline, there's only a small space for notes there. We will go on to look at points two and three because I do think these three stories all belong together. We see the church continuing to grow through the advancement of the preaching of the gospel as people repent and believe and the spirit is given to them. Tonight we'll focus on the second two points of the sermon. Simon, Simon Magnus, the sorcerer, the magician in our story. And we'll look at that rather strange part of this text where we have a description of people being baptized, which is the sign and seal of the Holy Spirit's work, but not yet receiving the Spirit. And how do we deal with a text like that? Tonight, we see the power of God in the advancement of the gospel, the need for faith and repentance, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Just to set this in context, to remind you about Samaria. You remember, uh, the gospel went to Samaria. Uh, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. There was an ongoing hostility between the Samaritans and the Jerusalem Jews. It's a hostility for over a thousand years that began back in the 10th century with the division of the kingdom between the two tribes and the 10 tribes, the 10 tribes whose capital was Samaria. We saw that, that in the captivity as the uh, Israelites were taken away, Assyrians come and intermarried with them. To be a Samaritan was synonymous with being a half-breed. They were then corrupt in their worship, trying to, to put together the worship of God and the worship of idols. They were theologically divided. They were those who had any, anything but a reason to follow after the Jerusalem Jews. An ongoing hostility for a thousand years. And yet now, now the gospel comes to Samaria. And they hear the gospel, and they embrace the gospel. And we read in verse 8, there was much joy in that city. We saw last time the reminder, which we'll see again tonight, the reminder that no one is beyond the call of the gospel. And the gospel call goes out, even to Samaria, to this place of darkness, when the gospel call goes out, and people repent and believe salvation comes to their home and they are a part of the people of God. One of the people in Samaria was this man Simon. Verse 9. And there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Simon, sometimes referred to as Simon Magnus, Simon the Great, often referred to as Simon the Sorcerer. Simon, who practiced magic. Now kids, this is not like the magic we have today. Someone shows you a card trick, and they, they pick your card out of the deck. This is not sleight of hand. This is not ledger domain. This is not the magic we see on TV. Uh, I had the privilege a couple years ago of watching uh, the magic show of David Copperfield. Absolutely amazing. He took this huge, huge car and made it disappear. Now I know, kids, it really didn't disappear. 
It was a trick. It was sleight of hand. It was manipulation. That's not the kind of magician that Simon was. When we are told that he practiced magic, it means that he dabbled in the evil arts. He was colluding with demons and apparently doing great things by their power. Again, verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God. They recognized it was something spiritual. This man is the power of God that is called great, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This man, Simon, the sorcerer, Simon, who colludes with the demons, this man now hears the gospel. What do we read? Verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Love that. The amazer, the amazer of others, is now amazed in the power of the gospel comes to him. But Simon, Simon sees what is happening around him. He sees what happens when the apostles come down from Jerusalem. And when by the laying on of their hands, they give the Spirit of God. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Simon used money to try to buy spiritual power. And it is why, that is why his name, Simon, is still connected with a particular sin that we have today. The sin of simony. Simony is one of those sins listed in our own church order for which an office bearer can be put out of office. It is trying to buy or sell spiritual favors with money. Simon Magnus, the original Simony sin. He tries to buy the gifts of God. And, and Peter rebukes him sharply. He says, may your silver perish with you. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter says, you have no part of us. You have no part in us. Your heart is not right before God. And he rebukes him strongly. But he goes on. He goes on in verse 22. Repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be Simon, the sorcerer. Simon, who colluded with demons. Simon, this one who tries to buy the favors of God. When he is rebuked, 
He is not told, you are forever banished. He is told, repent. Repent. Even this one is not beyond the pale of God's grace. Just like Samaria. Samaria, those who were indifferent to the things of God, when they heard the gospel and would repent, the gospel came to them. Even this one called to faith and repentance. Perhaps just in passing, we know the way our text is worded. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. That, if possible, does not have to do with the possibility of God saving him. If Simon would repent, God would certainly save. The if possible goes with what Simon will do. Will he be the one who will humble himself? If you would repent, Simon, if it's possible you to do that, then you can be sure God will hear you. There's no question on God's part as to whether it or not he can save. The question is, will Simon repent? What we read, verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon you. There is great debate about the sincerity of Simon in these words. And certainly, we leave the answer to whether he was sincere or not. We leave that answer to God himself, the God who sees the hearts of all. But what we notice is, when the call came to repent, when the call came to pray for forgiveness. What Simon should have done is fallen on his knees and repented and prayed for forgiveness. That is not what he does. Simon does not fall down before the Lord and repent of his sin. Rather, he says to Peter, you do it for me. You pray for me that nothing of what you said will come upon you. It's a reminder to us that when the call to faith and repentance comes, the answer should not be, well, someone else can do that for me. When the call to faith and repentance comes, it is for us to repent. It is for us to believe. The minister cannot do it for you. The elders cannot do it for you. Kids, your parents can't do it for you. They cannot believe in Jesus Christ for you. I can assure you, kids, there is nothing your parents would like more. If on your behalf, they could embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they cannot do that for you. You are called to hear that call of the gospel. You are called to to recognize your sin and to repent of that sin and you yourself to ask God for forgiveness. The call to repent comes silent. Even to this one. This one who was in collusion with devils. This one from Samaria, that place of darkness. We 
see the power of the gospel and the need for individual faith and repentance. In the midst of this story, we have this strange incident regarding baptism and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Baptism and the Holy Spirit. The consistent witness of Scripture is that when someone confesses, when someone repents, and when they are baptized, they at that point receive the Holy Spirit. The baptism is the sign and seal of the washing with Christ's blood and His Spirit. And so it is completely irregular what this story tells us. They repented. They believed. They were baptized. But the Spirit hadn't been given yet. There was a, we might say, two-stage conversion process. Baptism first, and the Spirit later. This two-stage theology has been embraced by some. Actually, two very different uh, groups embrace this two-stage theology. The Roman Catholic Church embraces this truth. And the Pentecostal Church embraces this truth. The Roman Catholic Church embraces this truth in that when you are baptized, you receive a sign of the Spirit, but not until confirmation do you receive the Spirit. And they use this text to prove their point. Look, there's two parts, there's two stages. Baptize first, and then later the Spirit comes. Hence, in Roman Catholic theology, baptism first and later confirmation. I don't think many of us are in danger of falling into that two-stage theology. But the other group, the Pentecostal group, also uses this text in a particular way. They say that in the initial stage of our salvation, in our baptism, water baptism, we receive Jesus as our Savior. He is the Savior from our sins. But then we look for something later, a later stage, where He is not only Savior from sin, later, he becomes the Lord of our lives. We talked about Christ's lordship this morning, that he reigns and rules over us. They would see a radical distinction between those two things. Baptism is my sins being removed. 
the reception of the Spirit, now I begin to work out the implications of my salvation. So what happens is, someone with this mindset, this two-stage theology, and they, they find themselves living in sin, well, they have a built-in excuse. I've only been baptized. Water baptism, the Spirit baptism, the second blessing hasn't come yet. And a text like this becomes an excuse to live however we want. I've got my sins forgiven so I can live whatever I feel like. Oh, maybe later, maybe later in life, when the Spirit comes, I'll start to live for the Lord. And they use a text like this to demonstrate that. Does this text teach two stages in our salvation? And if it does, is that what we should expect today? Is it legitimate to say, yes, I'm living in my sin, but, but I've only been baptized yet. I'm waiting for something later before I start to live for Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm going to suggest this evening that it is the consistent witness of Scripture. There is one stage in our salvation that, that when we repent, when we confess, when we are baptized, the Spirit is given at that point. Well, if that's the case, how do we deal with a text like this? There are some who deal with this text trying to suggest that either the initial stage, baptism, or the second stage, the reception of the Spirit, one of those two really didn't happen. There are some who deal with this text by saying, look, that initial baptism really wasn't a baptism because it was Philip they believed. Philip came, Philip preached, they believed Philip. And so it wasn't truly a belief in Jesus Christ. Well, those who would say that simply ignore what the text teaches. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. No, we don't solve this problem by saying the baptism was not a real baptism. Some try to resolve the problem by saying the second stage didn't really happen. The second stage wasn't the reception of the Spirit. It was a reception of the manifestations of the Spirit. Those extraordinary manifestations, speaking in tongues and healing and words of knowledge, that hadn't come to them yet. But again, those who would suggest that simply fail to deal with what the text says, verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Not the manifestation of the Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. And then a verse earlier, verse 16, the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. The Holy Spirit, not the manifestations, the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them. Luke, the author, does not give us any suggestion that either one of these stages was unreal. How do we deal with a text like this? When someone says, look, I can have Jesus as my Savior, but not yet as my Lord. Two-stage theology. 
it won't come as a surprise to you, because I hope it doesn't, when I tell you we have to remember one of the interpretive principles in the book of Acts. The difference between something that is prescriptive of what took place and something that is descriptive, descriptive of what took place, or prescriptive for us today. Now, I hope we don't use that distinction simply to say, well, if there's something I don't get, it must only be descriptive. I can't, I'm not making, making a prescript. No, I would suggest that what we have here in Scripture is a true account of a two-stage process of salvation. Baptism happening first, and the Spirit being given later. But I would also suggest this text itself points out we should not expect that to be normative for today. It is descriptive of what happened back here. It is not prescriptive for us today. We know that by, by the fullness of what's revealed in Scripture. The connection between baptism and the Spirit. Back in the Pentecost event, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, you read this. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism and the Spirit are linked together. Paul speaks of that in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we read in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, all the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, you do have the Spirit. If you've repented, if you believe, if you've been baptized, you have the Spirit of God. There are other texts we could look at. I'll just give you one more you might want to look up later from Galatians chapter 3, where Paul asks this question, let me ask you this only, did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? Faith, embracing the truth of the gospel, is connected with the giving of the Spirit. This is not prescriptive for us. It's descriptive of what took place for them. And our own text highlights the irregularity of this event. Again, from verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. It is not the norm that whenever a conversion takes place, that apostles are sent from Jerusalem. In the next story we're going to look at next week, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian and his conversion, there's no apostles sent down from Jerusalem. The fact that they are sent, and the text highlights they are sent, points out this irregularity. And then verse 16, For the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The text point out, they expected to see 
baptism of the Spirit together, but that had not happened yet. The text itself points out the irregularity of what was going on. So we don't take a text like this and build a whole theology around it. We recognize this was something particular, something distinct that happened in the New Testament church in Samaria, but we don't make it regulative for us today, and we certainly don't make it an excuse for us today. That we are waiting, we are waiting to live our lives for Christ for some later time when some mysterious spirit comes upon us. No, the consistent witness of Scripture is that when we embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, repent before Him, and are baptized, we also receive the Spirit to serve Him as our Lord. Don't take a text like this and use it as an excuse. All who confess Jesus Christ, all who embrace Him as their only hope for salvation, all who are baptized in His name, now have the Spirit of God in them and are called to live accordingly. Called to a righteous life because the Spirit does dwell in us. And He allows us to begin to, to follow after God, to follow after His law. We are saved that we might serve our Savior, and our Lord. This text speaks about God's glorious work of salvation. A work in Samaria. A work in that dark place, yet the gospel comes, and when it does, there is joy. A gospel call that is given to Simon, someone who is in league with the demons, but the call to repent, if you would not repent, Simon, this truth is for you. Simon fails to fall on his knees. He fails to repent. He fails to personally embrace Jesus Christ. Had he done so, there would have been this gift of the Holy Spirit as it is with us. When we repent, when we embrace Jesus Christ, the Spirit is given to us now. So that's the gospel call today. The gospel call is to repent and believe Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, turn away, embrace Christ alone. And when you do, when you embrace Jesus Christ, when you are baptized in Him, you now have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't say, I'll live my life for Christ sometime later. We say now. Now, by the power of God's Spirit that currently dwells in His people, now I will offer myself as a living sacrifice accepting unto Him. Oh, we thank God that there is not a, a two-stage process in our salvation. But when God saves us, Jesus Christ becomes our Lord and allows us by the Spirit to live for Him. Let's join together in prayer. But our God, tonight, once again, we have opened Your Holy Word. It is right. It is true. It is infallible. It is in error. Help us, O oh God, always to compare Scripture to Scripture. When we come to a text that is not clear to us, that raises questions in our minds. Thank you, O oh God, for the clarity of your revelation. That throughout Scripture we can see your one plan of salvation. 
And when Jesus Christ is confessed, when he is in grace, when we repent of our sins, when we are baptized in his name, that you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. And right then, right then we can begin to live lives of service to you. Lord God, if we have been lax in that, we have perhaps even used this text as an excuse. The Spirit hasn't fallen completely. Give us, wash us, cleanse us, and by that Spirit work in us a greater desire to live for you every day. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.